Thank you to our music team. Children can be dismissed at this time. Let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. This morning we will look at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. And we'll see the King of Glory, whom Bob just read about, misunderstood. This section of the gospel, according to Mark, begins a new section that will go through the rest of the book, Mark 11 through 16, that focuses specifically on the last week of our Lord's life before the cross and before his resurrection. Mark devotes six chapters to this event. And so this is the very beginning of it in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever, rid, has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming king of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have now to study your word. We pray that as we see another Scenario, another situation in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, that you would open our eyes to see. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us and that you would help us to understand what the people did not understand. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not just have a, a past reflection of your glory and of your, of your power and your sovereignty but that we would always keep before us this king of glory. That we would remember that we are always living in your presence, Lord. We're grateful that we have you as our advocate, Jesus, because we know we still sin. So we pray that as we, as we live this life and walk through it, we would be sensitive to our own sin and would be quick to come back to you, our advocate, who always meets us with confession, who always meets our confession with the pronouncement that we are forgiven, that it is finished, it is paid. Oh Lord, help us. We need you. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O oh Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
you are likely aware that yesterday marked the significant event of the coronation ceremony of King Charles III, the United Kingdom's king. Perhaps you watched it, perhaps you fixed yourself some high tea and got out your fancy gowns, or perhaps, like me, you just Googled it this morning to see what happened. You can find, if you're interested, a three-minute video clip. Apparently, you can take all that pomp and circumstance and whittle it down to three minutes. A three-minute video clip of the ceremony. It's quite impressive. I'm a red-blooded, hamburger-eating American and not ashamed. But this was quite impressive. It began at Buckingham Palace. There's a ceremony that uh, leads from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, one of the most historic Christian churches, buildings uh, in Christianity, and one of the most beautiful, certainly. It's a ceremony that took place. In fact, it was uh, a very old and very traditional ceremony, and it's at least used to be a ceremony that was rooted in the scriptures, but this king has tweaked it slightly. One of the things that you'll see if you choose to watch that three-minute video is at a point in time in the coronation of the King of England, the King of the United Kingdom, there comes a time when the head of the Church of England anoints the king with oil, symbolic of the Bible's kings being anointed with oil. But in order to do this procedure, they thought, at least in word, they thought it was so holy that it could not be shown on video. And so you'll see people come with these sort of nice-looking barriers and make a square around the king and the head of the Church of England while the, the head of the Church of England, the archbishop, anoints the king. It, wasn't, it was determined not to be fit to seen, be seen with other more common eyes. After that, the king is crowned. The king is given an orb that represents with a cross on top of it that represents that he is supposed to function as God's king. The scepter is put in the king's hand to to show his power. And then there's a procession back to Buckingham Palace. All in all, it was said to have cost somewhere, though they don't release the official numbers, but it was thought to have cost somewhere around $125 million dollars. It was a glorious display from human standards. Probably some of the most glorious displays that mankind could ever come up with. And yet the reality is, it was entirely empty. This particular king subscribes to a more new age way of thinking. He's not very interested in the scriptures. He's not very interested in the God of the scriptures. And yet this pomp and this circumstance, this, this by all regards glory that man could come up with was, was put on full display, but yet when you peel back the curtain, the reality is that all of that shiny facade was just that, a facade. In the triumphal entry, we see something quite different. There's glory But as the king of glory makes his way into his city, the holy city, Jerusalem, lauded and praised by the people, 
Mark doesn't tell us all of the details about it, but if you read Matthew's account, then you understand that the whole city was asking, who is this? And the answer back was, this is the prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. One of the reasons I asked Bob to read Psalm 24 was because in the traditional calendar of Israel's worship, that very morning in the temple, do you know which psalm was proclaimed? Psalm 24. And who, come in, who came into the city with the same pomp and circumstance that Solomon and Jehu came into the city with? Jesus, the King of glory. And yet, as he makes his way into the city, Jesus is most directly interested in getting into the very heart, not just the heart of the city, but the heart of Israel's worship. He goes to the temple. And Mark has him look around, and in what seems to be a very anticlimactic scenario, Jesus decides it's late, and he'll take the disciples and go back to Bethany, perhaps to spend the night in Lazarus and his sister's house, the man whom he has just healed, though Mark doesn't tell us about that. Jesus comes to the temple which was widely known as one of the most glorious buildings ever built by human beings. The gold of it could be seen from miles and miles away as, it, as the sun hit it and reflected off of it. It was pure beauty. Glory from the perspective of man. And yet as the king of glory, veiled in flesh, who looked just like anyone else, walks into that glorious place, what he finds is a facade, emptiness, nothing. And so as we see the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to see the revelation of his character. What type of king is this? Do you remember last week what Bartimaeus called him? The son of David. That was the setup for this moment when Jesus is heralded and treated just as the son of David and when the people change the words of Psalm 118 to Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This shows God's true king, the Messiah himself, coming into God's own city to go to God's own temple, the place where God's presence once dwelt, though it had long departed because the people had sinned so grievously against God. And when the king of glory, veiled in flesh, unrecognized by humankind, comes into the glorious temple, what he finds is the exact opposite of what Israel thought. Contrary to their understanding that that was the place where they met with God, that that was the place of centrality of worship of God, Jesus finds it unripe, bearing no fruit, and totally empty and void. So this morning, as we work our way through Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, I want us to see, first of all, that Jesus is the sovereign king so that we will give him our total allegiance. I want us to see that Jesus is the promised king so that we will worship him appropriately. And I want us to see that Jesus is the discerning king who inspects not just Israel's worship, but our 
worship. Let's start first with the sovereign king. In verses 1 to 6, we see Jesus is the sovereign king. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus and his disciples make their approach to Jerusalem. You know already that they've been on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus has been so determined to get there, as Luke says, he set his face like flint. In other words, Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem was hard as a rock. Nothing was going to stop him from getting to Jerusalem. And so they've been making their way there. And verse 1 tells us, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, out the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead. So they're getting close. They're about two miles away or so, and they stop in this particular location outside of Bethphage and outside of Bethany, and they stop at a significant place in Israel's history and a significant place for the future of humanity, the Mount of Olives. Much could be said about the Mount of Olives, but let me just remind you perhaps of something that you already know. Back to Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, at the destruction of the temple, at the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, Ezekiel saw a vision. And it was a terrifying vision for a Jew. What marked Israel as the people of God. Certainly it it was things like the, the priesthood, the covenants, but what marked Israel most especially as the people of God is that God dwelt with them. That's what set them apart as uniquely different. And where did God happen to dwell? Where did his presence reside? Where did the glory literally fall? Well, in Ezekiel's day, it fell in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And yet what Ezekiel saw because of Israel's sin over and over and over, their unfaithfulness to the covenant that God had made with them, he saw the glory of the Lord depart from the temple and rest on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel eleven twenty three says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That mountain is the Mount of Olives. Things would forever be different for Israel after that. And yet now, where does Jesus stop? And in fact, where does Jesus return to throughout this last week of his life? Where is the garden where Jesus prays to his father It's the Mount of Olives, the place that has had such a significant impact on the nation of Israel. And not only has it had a past impact for Israel, but also it's the place where Jesus ascended back to heaven after his death and resurrection. He spent time there with his disciples and he taught them there. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 12, we come to understand that the place where Jesus ascended back to heaven, where the disciples sat gawking with their jaws on the floor and the angel had to say, hey, get back to work, boys. That very place was the Mount of Olives. But I've got good news for you. God's not done with the Mount of Olives. In fact, it is the place where Jesus will return to one day. 
Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 says, On that day, on the great day of the Lord, the final judgment, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives that shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And where does Jesus happen to stop on his way to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives? It's no coincidence that they stopped right there. Jesus then sends his disciples, two of them, two unnamed disciples, he sends them ahead of them into the village and he tells them in verse two, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Notice, first of all, that Jesus is entirely in charge of this situation, isn't he? And that's what Mark wants you to see. You remember why they're going to Jerusalem, don't you? Jesus has told them, the Son of Man must suffer and die and in three days rise again. If I knew what my if I knew that I was marching to my death, I'm not sure I would be as with it as Jesus is. Mark is highlighting for us that Jesus is the sovereign king, the king who controls all things. So he wants his disciples to go ahead of them uh, and he wants them and he tells them that as soon as they enter into the village, they'll find a particular type of animal. They'll find a colt And that colt will be tied. And that colt just happens to be one that no one has ever ridden before. That might not sound very significant to us, but for Israel, that was highly significant. If you wanted to use an animal in sacrifice, according to Numbers 19.2 and Deuteronomy 21.3, it had to be one that was never ridden before. When it was time in 1 Samuel chapter 6 to pull the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, although that didn't turn out so well the first time, when it was time to pull it in, who, what what animal was it that was intended and and, uh, explained to pull it in? It was an yoke, uh, an oxen that had never been yoked before. The idea here is that this is a holy animal. It's not a cult that never committed any cult sins or anything like that. The idea is that it's never been used for anything else. And now the king of glory says, go get that because it's mine. See, the idea of holiness and set-apartness throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, the people of Israel's worship, was that if something were holy, if something were set apart, it was unique entirely. Why? Because it was to be used for God's purposes. So, for instance, when the New Testament calls us saints, holy ones, it's not just a reference to our identity in Jesus Christ, it's a reference to our usefulness to God. We're set apart for God's use entirely. And notice, too, that this particular cult is tied. 
Five different times Mark emphasizes the fact that this cold is either tied or untied in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5. It's interesting to note that in Genesis chapter 49, as Abraham blesses his sons and he gets to the blessing of Judah, listen to that blessing in Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 to 11. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What is Jesus the lion of the tribe of? Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Listen to this. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Perhaps Mark is not referring back to this Old Testament prophecy beginning with the father Judah all the way down to the Messiah, but I happen to think there's, this is not a coincidence. Why make such a big deal about the fact that it's tied? He could have just said one time that it was tied, right? But five times he emphasizes that it's either tied or untied. See, when we come to this passage, it's easy for us to think about palm branches, especially if you grew up in a a tradition where uh, you would wave palm branches or there would be palm branches on Palm Sunday. And then as, as kids in Sunday school, we were taught how to make a cross from the palm leaf. If you grew up in that type of setting, then what's the usual emphasis? Palms, right? And it's, it's a right emphasis to, to show the kingship of Jesus Christ. But what's going on here is the scriptures are being fulfilled. Jesus is saying, here I am, Israel. I'm your king. I'm the one that has been promised so long ago. And so he sends him ahead and he tells him to get a colt that is specifically prepared for God's use and one that is tied so that it would be crystal clear who the Messiah is. And notice also whom Jesus said would be using the cult. He says, if anybody gives you trouble about this, give them the secret password. And what's the secret password? The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Now, it was interesting and, and maybe a little bit discouraging this week as I read various commentaries about this particular scenario. Different people said different things, of course. And one of the things that was said was that it's not sure, and in fact, it's true, it's not crystal clear what this scenario, uh, whether this scenario was planned out and prearranged by Jesus. And it's not crystal clear in Mark's account if the, the, the Lord of this cult, the, the master of this cult, which is another way you could translate kurios, Lord, was with Jesus. And Jesus is just kind of saying, hey, it's okay, the owner of the cult is with me, we're going to borrow it, and then we're going to send it back. I think that's total nonsense. Who's Jesus talking about when he, calls, when he says that the Lord has need of it? Jesus is talking about Jesus. That's who he's talking about. I, the Lord, have need of it, and I'll give it back to you when I'm done with it. Already throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been called the Lord. 
Chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 28, chapter 5, verse 19. It's no surprise here that Jesus is the Lord, and that's what he's emphasizing. And and notice how quickly and easily the colt is retrieved in verses 4 to 6. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Jesus, the prophet, knew what was going to happen, and he gave them the solution to the problem they were going to face. And verse 6 says, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. That's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? Just tell them what Jesus said. They may not always let you go. But these six verses are designed to show us the sovereignty, the control, the power of Jesus Christ, the foreordination of Jesus Christ, the reality that Jesus is in charge. One commentator, uh, Jim Edwards, says the first six verses of our narrative are devoted to preparation for the entry into Jerusalem and are narrated so as to demonstrate Jesus' precise foreknowledge and sovereignty over subsequent events. Which is a really theological way of saying, this shows you that Jesus is in charge. Do you understand that? You understand that Jesus is in charge? I think most all of us, maybe not every one of us here, but most all of us would say, yeah, I I get that. Well, I want you to do me a favor, but keep it to yourself, okay? Do me a favor and think about the last thing you worried about. Think about the last thing that made you anxious. Think about the last time you were afraid. And now take yourself back to the reality that Jesus is in charge. You see, what the Christian must do is take this sovereign king and then take whatever troubles you And lay it right next to him. And then take a step back and compare the two. And then ask yourself, does this thing that I'm worried about so much, does this thing that I'm afraid of so terribly, does it measure up to the sovereign king? And you know the answer to that question, right? And yet we still worry, don't we? And yet we still struggle with fear, don't we? You see, my friends, I I hope it's obvious what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to show you that you do believe, at least most of you believe, that Jesus is the sovereign king. And yet, as sinners, you and I still live at moments as if we do not believe that Jesus is the sovereign king. That's what worry is. That's what fear is. That's what anxiety is. And, and now you're probably feeling really guilty about that, right? Insert the gospel. Because as a child of God, guess what? It's not your lack of anxiety that justifies you before God. Who is it that justifies you before God? Jesus, the sovereign king. 
And so how then, when you sin as a Christian, how then does that change anything about your status with God? It doesn't. So so take that guilt that you're feeling and turn it into what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief that leads to repentance. Don't beat yourself up. Jesus was beaten for you. Don't try to perform penance. Now, we're good Protestants, right? We would never, never perform penance. Except you and I both know we, we roll around in our guilt for a while when we sin, don't we? Oh, I can't believe I did that. You ever say that? Don't raise your hand. I can't believe I did that. Is it, is it, does it surprise you that you're a sinner? You can't believe you did that? What, you think your heart is awesome or something? Your heart is pure? Does God not say your righteousness is like filthy rags? But whose righteousness is pure and spotless without blemish? Jesus. It's a simple little thing. Jesus says, we're stopping here. You two, doesn't even tell us his names. You two, go ahead. There's going to be a cult. As soon as you get into that village, you take it, you untie it. People are going to ask you what you're doing because that's what people ask when you take things that don't belong to you. People are going to ask what you're doing. Tell them the Lord has need of it and then bring it back to me. And they say, okay. That's, that's how I imagine the disciples kind of talking because that's how I talk often. They go into the village, they untie the colt. Sure enough, somebody asks, what are you doing? Because that's what people ask when you take things that don't belong to you. And they say what Jesus had to say and they say, okay, it's cool, go, go ahead. And it works. Why does it work? Because Jesus is the sovereign king. I think it's easy to see the sovereignty of God in the big things in life and yet forget about the sovereignty of God in the little things in life. You might not know what you're going to eat for lunch today, but God does. If you're single, you don't know who you might marry, but God does. You don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, but you know who does? God does. So then what is the right response to this sovereign king? Total allegiance, right? If he's the one in charge of everything and I recognize that, then I have to just submit myself to him. Total allegiance, total worship, total obedience. Why? Because I love him because I recognize no one else is worthy of my trust and no one else brings the type of peace that Jesus brings. And so I want to ask you two questions. Question number one, have you recognized and given Jesus your total allegiance as the sovereign king? That's question number one. Question number two is, do you Give him your total allegiance as the sovereign king. You see, we have this really, really, really bad habit 
of thinking about our salvation in past tense terms. And of course, that's, there's an aspect where that's absolutely true. But the Bible presents to us over and over again that the reality is that the Christian life is not a past tense banking on something you did when you were whatever age or whatever, in whatever situation or whatever circumstance you were in. But the reality is we bank our lives on right here, right now. Do you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And do you follow Jesus right here, right now? He is the only one, the only one that you can truly trust because he is the sovereign king. And so we see him as the sovereign king. And then secondly, we see him as the promised king. The promised king, verses 7 to 10. The fulfillment of prophecy just keeps going. Verse 7 says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. It was an unridden colt, an unridden donkey, and so it didn't have a saddle. So in order to make a saddle for Jesus and in a, in a display of their honor and in a display of their reverence, they put their cloaks on it, their outer garments, the, the thing that was so important to them. It wasn't like they had a closet full at home like we do. You lose your cloak, oh, no big deal, I got four others. They put it on the colt and they sit Jesus on the colt. I read to you already from Zechariah chapter 14. Let me remind you what Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Now what do you picture so far? Your king is coming to you. He's righteous. He's having salvation. Glory, right? But Zechariah continues to explain, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The sovereign king is once again putting forth the reality that he is the king whom God has promised. It was not typical for a pilgrim at the Passover to ride into Jerusalem. They walked. And you remember back in Jesus' ministry so far, have we ever seen him ride an animal? He walks. And why did he do that? You remember what happened when people started to notice him and, and he gained all sorts of attention because of his healing or because of his teaching? People started to flock to him and what did he do? He got away. He would heal someone and he would tell them, now don't you tell anybody about this. Why? Because he wanted to keep it secret. Because he knew that there was going to be an appointed time in the future when that secret would get out and it would get out intentionally and it would need to get out because God would need to cause such a stir in the heart of Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple itself, that the plan of the scribes and the Pharisees to destroy him back in Mark chapter 3 would culminate at the cross. So not only does Jesus 
allow himself to be honored in this way, he sets it up to show Israel that he is their true king. And it's not just the disciples that honored him, but verse 8 continues to explain, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So now you've got a picture of a, of a king's coronation, of a king marching his way into Jerusalem. And it may not sound very impressive to you because cloaks and palm branches don't compare to solid gold crowns and crowned orbs like King Charles III had, but this was consistent with Israel's history. It was how Solomon was made king in 1 Kings chapter 1 verses 38 to 48. And it was how Jehu was made king in 2 Kings 9, 11 to 13. Listen to that. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow in his talk. He's trying to dismiss it. Verse 12 says, and they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And what did the people do as soon as they heard Jehu was anointed king over Israel? Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So what is the crowd doing as they laud Jesus, as they praise Jesus? They're proclaiming Jesus is king. And this is exactly in John chapter 12 when John tells us the story of the triumphal entry. This is exactly what they sang. Hail to the king of Israel. It's not as impressive as the UK's coronation, but it was completely consistent with Israel's king's coronation. They lauded him as the king. And then verses 9 and 10 told us what they were singing, which was a, a normal thing for them to sing as the pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem to praise the Lord for the Passover. They would sing Psalms 113 through 118, the, the Hallel Psalms, the, the praise Yahweh Psalms. And they sang there... And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118, 25 to 26 says, save us or Hosanna in the Hebrew. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It was common for them to sing, and when they sang that, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were talking about all the pilgrims who came in the name of the Lord to worship the Lord in the Passover, but now as they sing this, they recognize their king. And notice they changed the words to reflect what Bartimaeus taught us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. But I ask you, what kingdom has Jesus been proclaiming? Has he been proclaiming the kingdom of their father, David? He's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of their father, David, will come at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when he takes his place on the throne of this world. But what they wanted was to be saved right then and now from Roman oppression. 
Save us from these dirty, stinky Gentiles, O Lord. Here's the king who's going to do it. And do you know what this also reflects? It's not in your Bibles, but if you read the apocryphal accounts of the, the book of Maccabees, by the way, I used to think that if I read the Apocrypha, I was like worshiping Satan or something. It's not true. You, you can't bank anything really on the Apocrypha. But the book of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, is, is history just like any other thing. It's not inspired scripture. It doesn't belong in your Bible. But it tells us that what happened when the Romans desecrated the temple was that Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem just like this and he wiped out the Romans. And that, in the minds of these folks, is the clearest, the most recent historical example to them. So when Jesus rides in and they laud him, they're thinking, yes, it's time to get the Romans out of here and bring the nation of Israel back to its former glory. You see, what they wanted, just as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, what they wanted was a king of their own making. What Jesus shows them is that he is the king whom God has promised. They want a king that will do their bidding. They want a king that will make their life comfortable and easy. They want a king that will put them back on top of the world. Why did they want that? Because they were totally blind to what they actually needed. And isn't that the sinner's reality? The sinner, apart from the work of God to open his or her eyes, is totally blind to what he or she most needs. We get in jams and we think what we most need is money to pay the rent. And that doesn't mean that's not important. Or we think what we most need is some kind of solution to this particular problem that I find myself in. And that's important. But we must never forget that the Bible makes it crystal clear our greatest problem is not outside of us, but inside of us. It's our sin. And that is what the King of Glory had first come to conquer our sin. They wanted a king that would do whatever they wanted for him, for them. But Jesus wouldn't bend himself to their will because he was totally committed to the Father's will. Let me ask you to think about this. Has anything changed about what people want from God? Are we somehow more enlightened now that we have the Bible? Christians are, certainly. We still struggle. But here's the reality, friends. Jesus is still treated like this. People still get all up in a, an uproar about Jesus. They dance and they sing and they, uh, they, they think that they're worshiping. And yet what they really want is a Jesus who will be a side cart to their life and help them get what they want out of life. I've shared this with you before, but that was, that was my story when I got saved. I realized that I had been treating Jesus, I had been treating God as if God was supposed to be my sort of 
rabbit's foot, my lucky charm that got me whatever I wanted. And if I just prayed and I held God to his promises, well, God, you said you'd do this. Whatever I ask in Jesus' name, you said you'd give it to me. And I closed my prayer with, in Jesus' name I pray, so you've got to give it to me. And if God doesn't give it to me, then what happens? Well, is God even there? But that moment when God humbled me and when God opened my eyes to my sin, I realized that I had been expecting God to worship me. I had been expecting God to exalt me. Friends, this is what happens every time someone sins, Christian or not. What is sin? It is the dethronement of God and the enthronement of self. Could there be anything worse? One of the most heartbreaking things I have ever experienced, both as a pastor and just as a Christian, is talking to another Christian who has been faithful to the Lord for a while, but now has their eyes fixed on some particular sin. And no matter how much you plead with them, and no matter how much you share scripture with them, and no matter how much you remind them of things that they used to say and things that they used to believe, they give you answers like, well, I have a different interpretation on the, of the Bible than that. Or, well, I just disagree with you about that being a sin. Isn't it heartbreaking? So let's make sure we never do that. Let's make sure we never do that. You know the good news? Jesus is the king whom God has promised. What does that king come to do? That king has come to bring peace Peace on earth will come one day, but the greatest peace that is, that is already available to us now in Jesus Christ is peace with God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the king whom God has promised. He is the king whom we must worship appropriately. And finally, with just one verse left, we see that Jesus is the discerning king. Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the discerning king. Notice how this story ends, much differently than the other gospel accounts. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Now, you've got the picture, right? The whole city's in an uproar. Crowds are following him. They're yelling Hosanna. They're putting out their cloaks and palm branches as his donkey rides over them. Uh, And then Mark just says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Really? All this pomp and circumstance, Jesus makes his way to the temple, which is where he wanted to go in the very first place. And Mark says, yeah, it was getting late, so they just packed it up and went home. But notice what Jesus did when he was in the temple. When he had looked around at everything. 
We've seen Jesus look around before, and I've talked to you about what that meant. It was not just a kind of, you know, okay, where's the bathroom in this place? It was a discerning gaze. It was investigation. It was a detective's work. Jesus walks to the temple to the very heart of Israel's worship, and he looks around. What is he doing? He's taking inventory. How do we know that? Well, we'll dive into it more next week, but notice verse 12. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Uh, Excuse me, not verse 12, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So what is Jesus doing when he looks around? He's getting the spiritual temperature of Israel. He's discerning the spiritual status of Israel. And what he sees enrages him. Because rather than treat the temple as it was meant to be, a house of prayer for the nations, they made it a den of robbers. He investigates their worship as the discerning king. But I want you to understand, even before we approach the Lord's table, that this investigation, this discernment has not ended. This is still what Jesus does for his people. You see, the piercing eye of Jesus is on every one of us right now. And he sees past the facade. He sees us for who we really are. You can't fake it with Jesus. You can't cover it up with Jesus. Think of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 to 18. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Wait, Judgment? I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge one another. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And if he's the sovereign king, then we have to believe the Bible, right? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Or think of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Before Jesus explains what he'll do to the rebellious and sinful world, he highlights what he's going to do to his church if they don't repent. Why? Because it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Because revival always starts with the people of God. Because the all-seeing eye, the piercing gaze, the discerning investigatory look of Jesus is always first on his people. But there's good news. Because when he investigates your heart and your worship and mine, what he's doing is burning out the impurities. What he wants is for us to be more and more holy, more and more like him, more and more set apart for the use of God. And I don't know about you, but I'm certainly not done being sanctified. Any, anybody here think they're done with that? 
So this is a good thing. Even though it's painful, even though it hurts, even though it's not comfortable, we don't want comfort. What is the call of Jesus? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Is it, does it feel good to put a cross on your back? No. But when you see the one who went to the cross for you to pay for your sins, then it is the greatest privilege imaginable. So friend, is there anything you're trying to hide from God? Because you can't. But the good news is you don't have to. Because Jesus set his face like flint. Jesus went to Jerusalem to go to that cross even though he knew our sins. Jesus washed the feet of Judas even though he knew Judas would betray him. Jesus forgave Peter even after he denied knowing him. And my friend, if you'll just confess that sin to God right here, right now, then he will forgive you and cleanse you. He promises. And in case you think that maybe, he, maybe it's too bad, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, which means he's the worst of all of us. No one could out Paul, and even Paul found forgiveness for his sins. There's no sin you could ever commit that God will not forgive if you will just come to him. If you will just confess, if you will just, like Bartimaeus did, plead for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. The good news is he loves to give it. Your sin does not surprise your Savior. So why carry it yourself? He paid for it. Take it to him. Lay it upon him. Trust him. He is the only mediator between God and men. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign king to whom we must give our total allegiance. He is the promised king whom we must worship appropriately. And he is the discerning king who inspects our worship.